Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In the 56 years between 1774 and 1832, 368 treaties were agreed upon between the several sovereign nations of the native peoples of North America and what became the United States. We discuss issues surrounding the treaties in this first of a two-part series with Victoria Patterson, Ph.D. She's an ethnologist who has studied the native people of North America for the past 40 years. These 368 treaties were attempts to set the geographical borders of the parties and to set conditions of behavior of the citizens of the several nations and the United States. Once negotiated and consented to by and with the advice and consent of the United States Senate, these treaties, like all other treaties, became the supreme law of the land. Conciliatory language, perhaps thought by some to establish an everlasting peace, was common in the words of many of the treaties. The 1778 treaty between the Delaware people and the United States memorialized that notion with a recital stating that all offenses or acts of hostilities by one or either of the contracting parties against the other be mutually forgiven and buried in the depth of oblivion never more to be had in remembrance. History, however, did not prove that notion. Victoria Patterson visited Radio Curious on January 16, 2017 to discuss treaties and issues of native sovereignty. We began with the condition of the native people after the colonies separated from England and before the establishment of the United States. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about. There have been some work done on the prehistory of the arrival of Europeans to this country. And many Native peoples, especially along the Massachusetts coast, have been completely decimated by disease long before the pilgrims arrived. And so in many cases, these colonists came to already emptied lands. And so when they encountered Indians, they were surprised. And there is some evidence that the English especially um, attributed to the Indians many of the negative connotations that they had given to the Irish. Some of the same language is used to describe the Indians as was the wild Irish. And so they came with a preset notion. When they encountered Indians, they saw them as evil savages. This led to a number of misunderstandings and half-treaties and continual uh, friction. You know, when they developed the Constitution... Several things were written into the Constitution around the whole idea of treaty making. 
because the idea of a treaty is an agreement made by negotiation or diplomacy between two or more nations that's formally signed by authorized representatives and usually ratified by some kind of lawmaking authority. Among the various nations. Among nations. This is what a treaty is. There are several articles in the Constitution which are very specific to the act of treaty making. It's not allowed to be done by states, and treaties have to be ratified by two-thirds of the Senate to make them legal. And these conditions have been the source of much litigation on the part of Indian nations over time. I want to get into those areas and the complexities, but before we go there, is the understanding, the uh, linguistic bars between the various parties to the negotiation and the interpreters. Who were the interpreters and how did they learn the language of the others? That's an excellent question, and a lot of that remains very murky. I know that in terms of the California treaties, there were a number of different villages. The treaty makers in California thought that they were dealing with tribes, when in fact they were not. They were dealing with small village communities. Many of those communities spoke different language and dialects, different dialects of those different languages. So in one of the diaries of one of the treaty makers, it's expressed that the English was translated into Spanish, which some of the Indians knew from their experience with the Spanish in the Sonoma area, and then from Spanish into one or more native languages. And the language of the treaties is quite distinct, quite government-like, and very complicated language. And so you wonder, what did the tribes really understand of what they were signing? Within the tribal languages, were there concepts that uh, transferred from English to Spanish to tribal language? Yes, because tribes also were very different entities, and they didn't always get along. And so there were very many uh, treaty-making or peacemaking events that occurred among Native communities before the columns arrived. So, yeah, they had a tradition of peacemaking. I mean, the whole peace pipe thing is a real thing. Over the years, beginning with the King George Proclamation, of 1763, up through uh, a time that you would choose, what are the numbers of treaties and can you highlight some of the difficulties within those treaties? Well, from 1774 to 1832, approximately 368 treaties between American Indian sovereign tribes and the United States were negotiated to establish borders and prescribe conditions of behavior between the parties. These were treaties that were ratified. There were other treaties, including the California treaties, which is a whole other story, that were not ratified. But those treaties were ratified, and they held at first the weight and substance of a treaty between sovereign nations, like the Treaty of Paris, which was the treaty written between Great Britain and the United States that ended the Revolutionary War. This notion of sovereign nations continued up through 1871, when the House of Representatives ceased recognizing Indians within the United States as sovereign nations. So that was the end of the ability to make a treaty as a nation-to-nation -nation agreement. Retroactively ceased recognizing? Well, at that point, at 1871, they no longer made any treaties. That was the end of a hundred-year tradition of treaty-making with the Indians. What, what did that piece of legislation do to the pre-existing treaties? Well, they existed in one form or another, but 
as you look at the history of treaty making, every treaty has been broken or changed or reduced or, you know, something. Very few original treaties are left intact. And among Indians, of course, treaties were known as bad paper because the history of Indian treaties in the United States is one of coercion and broken promises and fraud and trickery and it resulted in the loss of millions of acres of Indian homeland, thousands of Indian lives, and an attempt to eradicate Native American culture. So can you be specific, uh, Dr. Victoria Patterson, on the fraud and the coercion and trickery? So often these treaties were written under circumstances that were less than ideal, after Indians had given a lot of alcohol to drink, uh, after the government had appointed a representative for the tribe who really was not a traditional representative of the tribe, made, making promises to do to give them a certain amount of land and then a few years later coming back and reducing the amount of land in the treaty. This occurred over and over and over again. The history of Indian treaties is not only that, because there's the Indian side. It's also a history of Indian resistance and litigation and an ongoing reinterpretation of laws and regulations and the U.S. Constitution, and in the current revitalization of Native religion, language, and culture. And so they weren't able to succeed in eradicating Native American life, although many laws were passed geared to create an assimilated population. Let's stay with the Indian resistance. Can you address that? Well... It's very difficult to address because it took place in many difficult circumstances. You know, sometimes Indians rebelled violently with arms, and they were always crushed by the greater power of government forces. Government soldiers with rifles and horses and guns, you know, were easily able to overcome a lot of armed Indian resistance. The idea of capturing Indians and putting them in reservations and circumstances with poor food and uh, you know, not enough clothing and no medical attention, developed a very disheartened population. But, for example, in California, when the Spanish came, the Indians learned to ride horses, they learned to attack from ambush, uh, they ran away from missions. You know, there's a lot of ways that Indians resisted. But it's very difficult to resist the force of the government in all its power. But ongoing litigation is another form of resistance. Oh, and I'll, tell you, I'll give you a good example of that. One of the examples of a successful resistance was in the case of Georgia, the state of Georgia and the Cherokee. So in 1828, Georgia passed laws stripping the Cherokee of their rights and authorizing their removal from lands wanted by the state. But the Cherokee resisted the law citing many treaties that they negotiated as an independent nation within the United States that guaranteed them land and independence. After many attempts to negotiate with Andrew Jackson, who was the president at the time, and Congress failed, the Cherokee, under the leadership of John Ross, who was a Cherokee leader, sought an injunction against the state of Georgia to prevent the implementation of these new state laws. They took the case to the Supreme Court and Justice Marshall was the head of the Supreme Court at that time. Known as Cherokee Nation versus Georgia in 1831, the court ruled that it lacked the jurisdiction to hear the case, although it sympathized with the Cherokee, 
noting that they had been persecuted and marginalized, but asserted that they had the status of both foreign nations and dependent people under the government. So foreign nation, as defined in the Constitution, could not include Indian nations because they had said, you know, we're under the jurisdiction of the United States. Because the Supreme Court could only hear cases brought by foreign nations and not Indian nations, the court, in its decision, was not authorized to hear the case. But in 1830, Georgia passed another law that regulated its citizens to obtain a state license before they could enter the Cherokee Nation Reservation. Some missionaries who were supportive of the Cherokee were living inside the nation's territory, and they refused to get the license. One of those missionaries was named Samuel Worcester, who was a strong supporter of Cherokee rights and resistance. And Worcester and other missionaries were arrested and convicted by Georgia courts for not getting the license and remaining within the Cherokee Nation. So Worcester appealed to the Supreme Court, saying that the Georgia courts lacked the authority to convict them. And as we know, under the Constitution, states do not have the right to intervene in Indian affairs. But this case, known as Worcester versus Georgia in 1832 became a landmark case in that struggle for Indian rights. The Supreme Court ruled that because the Cherokee Nation was a separate political entity that could not be regulated by the state, as says in the Constitution, Georgia law as applied to the Cherokee Nation was unconstitutional. And therefore, Worcester, he, he won the case. However, the case established that only the United States and not individual states had the power to deal with Indians. Only the United States can negotiate terms on Indian lands and their use, and states lack the constitutional power to do that. So this reiterated the sovereign status of Indian tribes. In other words, they were nations. They were not part of the state. Worcester was finally released from prison in 1833, and today this ruling is no longer binding, and states may now regulate Indian territory within their boundaries. Now, it was a victory for the Cherokee and for Worcester in this sense. However, Andrew Jackson completely ignored the Supreme Court's ruling and said, well, they passed it, but let them try to enforce it. And instead, he pursued a policy of forced removal of the Cherokee to Oklahoma, which resulted in the infamous Trail of Tears, where three to 4,000 Cherokee out of the 16,000 forced to move died from the brutal winter march. And as a result of these removal treaties, which Jackson developed, by the 1840s, except for a small group of Seminole, no Indian tribes were left in the American South from the Mississippi River to the Atlantic. Our guest is Dr. Victoria Patterson, an ethnologist based in Ukiah, California. We're discussing the native people of North America and their treaties with the United States. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Beyond acquisition of territory by the federal government, were there other underlying motives? Well, yes, there was the underlying motive of getting rid of this problem, the Indian problem. And some were quite vicious, like sending smallpox-infected blankets to various tribes, as well as putting them on the most poorly developed land possible, and leaving the rest open for settlement. And there was an underlying sense of guilt on the part of the colonists and others because they understood property as property. And they 
had at the beginning acknowledged that Indian land was sovereign. Otherwise, why would they make a treaty? They recognized that Indians had the right to their homelands. But over time, as more and more people came and the westward expansion occurred, Indians were more and more in the way, and they had to figure out how to remove them. And the Removal Act, passed by Jackson in 1830, set the stage for a policy of taking Indians away from their homelands and moving them somewhere else. When the westward expansion came to California, where were they going to move them? There was a plan to move California Indians to Arizona. But Arizona said, wait a minute, we have enough Indians of our own. We don't want any more here. And there was the horrible case of Indians being marched into the ocean from Anderson Valley. Can you describe that? Well, Say more. you know, it's embedded in, in folklore, you know, that a group of Indians were marched out of Anderson Valley into the ocean to remove them. In California, what they tried to do after the 18 treaties that had been negotiated were not ratified by the Senate. The Indians were there. So they developed five reservations to try to remove the Indians from their local areas to these reservations. And that's how come we have Round Valley Reservations still. Can you give us the background applicable to California uh, regarding what you just said? Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things that happened over and over again with many reservations and many treaties was the discovery of precious metals within the boundaries of the treaty divine territories. This happened in the Black Hills uh, with the Sioux, and Standing Rock Reservation is one of those Sioux tribes that was part of the Fort Laramie Treaty. But also gold was the reason for the um, travesties surrounding the 18 treaties that were made in California between 1851 and 1852. In 1849, as we well know, gold was discovered in California, and by 1850, California became a state of the United States. This nascent state government had to deal with the numbers of Native people living in California, especially in Northern California, because the Spanish had established the missions of Southern California and had you know, brought many Indians into the mission system, causing, it's been estimated, the demise of about 80% or more of California Indians. But uh, the government, the state government, issued orders that restricted Indian movement, denied them the vote, and banned testimony against whites by Indians in an act for the government and protection of Indians, while at the same time approving over a million dollars for the suppression of Indian hostilities, which led to the formation and funding of volunteer militias whose goal was to massacre as many Indians as possible. One of those groups, known as the Eel River Rangers, was here in northern Mendocino County. And their attacks against Indians became the subject of a California state investigation and inquiry into what became known as the Mendocino Wars. So these resulting conflicts between Indians and whites led the United States government to authorize a trio of treaty makers to go to California with the authority of making treaties with the California Indians. And that was uh, Oliver Wozencraft, George W. Barber, and Reddick McKee. They were able to set up 18 treaties that reserved about 7,488,000 acres of land, which is equivalent to be about a third of California, as Indian homelands. So the intent of these treaties was to reduce Indian land holdings and move them to areas not desired by whites. 
So one of these treaties was made locally and is known as the treaty made and concluded at Camp Fernando Felis on Russian River between Reddick McKee, Indian agent on the part of the United States, and the chiefs, captains, and headmen of the Sennel, Yukias, and then it says, etc., etc., of Indians, tribes of Indians. It was done on August 22, 1851. And it required the tribes or bands to, and this is the language of the treaty, relinquish, cede, and forever quit claim to the United States all lands or soil in California, and moved to a reservation on Clear Lake, which had been created by another treaty done the previous, two days previous to this one, in, on the shores of Clear Lake. And uh, the tribes were to be given livestock, food, feed, medical supplies, and instructors in agriculture and learning. And this uh, treaty makers continued throughout California, making in total 18 treaties. But as we know from the Constitution, treaties to be legally binding have to be ratified by two-thirds of the U.S. Senate. So when the ratification process came up, there was a lot of pressure from California legislature to not approve the treaties, to not ratify them. California, they were worried that the maybe giving up land that had been not explored thoroughly for the possibility of finding more gold. The U.S. Senate said that they were unclear about whether Mexico had recognized native land titles. If Mexico had not, then they said the Indians in California came into the United States sovereignty without any legal claims to their land. So with the pressure from the California legislature and this reasoning on the part of the U.S. Senate, they rejected the treaties and they followed Senate rules to impose an injunction of secrecy on these treaties. Although recorded copies were returned to the Department of the Interior and publications of the time mentioned the treaties, and Indians also had copies. But when they were officially rejected, Indian title to the land of California was left completely unresolved. And these treaties remained lost until 1905, leaving Indians wondering what had become of their agreements. The discovery of the treaties in the early 1900s led to literally decades of litigation on California Indian land claims. This is another story entirely. <laughs> So, as settlers swarmed into California in the 1850s, conflicts between Indians and settlers increased. And following the removal policy used in other states, the government established five reservations between 1853 and 1857 to which Indians were removed. One of those early reservations was called Nomalaki Reservation, and it was in the northern part of the Sacramento Valley. It was later joined by the creation of what they called Nomi Cult Farm in Round Valley supposedly to grow food for the Sacramento Valley. It was actually a boondoggle on the part of the Indian agent. But this creation of the Nomi Cult Farm, which was bringing people, Indians, from the Sacramento Valley there against their will, created a local trail of tears. This is when the Nomalaki were forced to march over the high passes between the Sacramento Valley and Round Valley in 1863. Of 461 who left the valley, only 277 finished the 14-day, 100-mile trek. And in 1996, Galen Asbell, who was a member of the Round Valley Indian Tribes, who worked for the Forest Service, initiated a Trail of Tears commemorative walk, which is still held every September. Can you characterize uh, who the people were who went to Washington 
from their native uh, land, from their native tribes, to negotiate with the people in Washington, the leaders of the government at the time. Well, in many cases, these ambassadors from the tribes were, in fact, ambassadors if you regard Indians as sovereign nations, an ambassador from one nation going to the United States government as another nation. They came to negotiate better terms for their treaties. They came to save what was promised in the treaties. They came to plead for the lives of their people and their well-being. Some individuals came because they wanted to go to Washington because they uh, were honored by uh, getting the gifts and medals that the government bestowed on them. And in the Grace Hudson Museum exhibition, you can see how beautifully they were dressed and how proudly they wore these honors given to them by the United States government on a government-to-government basis. Um, Victoria Patterson, in our conversation now, uh, we haven't been particularly linear or chronologically linear, which is an expression that works in uh, the thinking of some North American people. English speakers. <laughs> English, yeah. Um, but in the issues that we've covered, are there conclusions that you would draw? Let me well, start. yes, I think anybody would come to the same conclusions if you look at the history of Indian treaty making in the United States. It is a history of broken treaties, broken promises, of the uh, continual reduction of Indian land. I don't want to say ownership because they didn't perceive it perhaps that way, but uh, Indian land occupancy, Indian homelands, you know, millions of acres have been taken from Native people. And this was done on the part of the government through you know, quasi-legal means. And it has been the source of much litigation on the part of many tribes who continue to fight for what is left of their treaties that were guaranteed to them as promises by the United States government. Uh, there is an interesting exhibit now at the National Museum of American Indian, and Suzanne Harjo, who is the curator, said, you know, these treaties are all of your treaties, you Americans, because when you came over here, I didn't see anybody dragging land behind them. Well, Dr. Victoria Patterson, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. We'll be talking soon uh, with more of this discussion. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. program recorded on January 16, 2017, is the first of a two-part series with ethnologist Victoria Patterson, Ph.D. I invite you to join us again next week for part two of our visits with Dr. Victoria Patterson. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website. They're free for anyone to enjoy, download, and broadcast as you wish. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. 
The snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.